and welcome to this video. Today we have um, Dr. Collins to talk about design arguments on this channel. This carries on with our introductory series to um, arguments for the existence of God. So if you're interested in design arguments, this is the video for you. We're going to be introducing what design arguments are, some of the arguments for, and some of the arguments against. Dr. Collins, how are you? I'm pretty good. So Dr. Collins is um, the chair of the Department of Philosophy at Messiah University, and he specializes in the, the field of philosophy of religion, especially design art, uh, and fine-tuning arguments. So um, it's a great privilege to have him on, in, on this channel. So um, to start off with, what are design arguments? Um, design arguments um, are arguments from the apparent um, structure of the universe or some part of the universe that um, is looks like it's for some end, so that it be something that would be difficult, seemingly difficult to be explained by chance. Mm -hmm. So I suppose um, design arguments have quite a long history, and I suppose have a lot of different formulations. If someone's perhaps talking to their teacher or talking to their Sunday school teacher, they might first get introduced to a design argument along the lines of, "Well, why does God exist? Oh, um, look at the trees. The trees are so beautiful." And someone might, of course, if they're starting to read into the literature, be exposed to different more objections and like criticisms to that, and there are more developed arguments against um, design arguments and formulations of design arguments. What would you say are some of the different formulation of these design arguments? So one that goes in the West and also in the um, Hinduism, um, the, the Indian tradition that goes back um, you know, to ancient times was about the order of the universe. And it apparently is, seems to be in some sense ordered for an end. Mm -hmm. And so that same argument then in the West is given by Thomas Aquinas. It's like his fifth, um, fifth way to the existence of God. Um, and then um, the back, next big kind of development of the design argument is William Paley in the, um, around um, in the 19th century, around 1800, in his natural theology. And there the focus is on mostly on the intricate um, structure of plant and animal life. So there was um, during that period of development of anatomy, and like when you look at the heart or the eye, it seems very um, intricately designed, intricately put together for a purpose of seeing or pumping blood. And so it'd be difficult to explain that by chance. And then, of course, along came um, Darwin's theory of evolution, which um, kind of undercut that argument because there was an alternative explanation to chance, namely chance and natural selection, which a lot of people thought was a plausible alternative. So then the next big development is um, the fine tuning of the cosmos, which I'll be talking more about how the cosmos itself, which is the universe, is um, very finely structured for the existence of um, life initially. Then I've extended that to scientific discovery. So there we're talking about the universe as a whole instead of some aspect of the universe. So evolution itself can't touch that argument. Now, there has been other evolutionary versions of it connected with the intelligent design movement, like Michael Behe's claim that certain um, systems in the body are irreducibly complex and could not be accounted for by an evolutionary process or Stephen Myers about the um, 
the initial sell that there's no way good way of accounting for it on naturalistic grounds and then throughout especially um in there's been philosophical criticisms of the argument besides the appeal to darwinian evolution and david hume is most well known for that so that's kind of a real brief sketch of the history of it mm -hmm. so there seems to be perhaps three kind of main strands there's the aquinas um, kind of teleological argument, I suppose, looking at ends. And then there's the intricate structures of um, Paley, and now it seems to move on to the fine-tuning arguments. Would you say that at the present day in modern kind of discourse, that all three of them um, still play a, a major role in modern discourse, or have some of them kind of fallen out of modern popularity, perhaps, and and, certain, and it's mainly well, focused on fine-tuning? Yeah, the intricate structure of plants and animal life is largely fallen out of favor for at least among intellectuals because it seems to be at least ex whether you, you believe in darwinian evolution or not it seems explicable by darwinian evolution and um so the revival a lot of people don't buy the revival of it by um the intelligent design movement so but it's much much more widely accepted, the fine-tuning. So probably the big focus is on the fine-tuning. I didn't mention another one that I think is actually needs more development, and that's just the, or, the plain order of the universe as reflected in the laws of nature and the mathematical structure. Those could all be kind of combined a little bit into fine-tuning. But, mm -hmm. you know, they have been around too, but I think those could be more developed. Perhaps developing on kind of this difference, what would you say are the main differences between a fine-tuning argument, a design argument, or, or I suppose design is an intricate structure argument and the teleological argument, I suppose. What would you say were the biggest differences between them? Well, the biggest differences is what the focus of apparent mm -hmm. design is. And um, the one on the universe as a whole is not subject to a Darwinian explanation. Mm -hmm. And... It also is not, um, it's quantifiable in a way that the others are not because you can look at what happens when you change a parameter and parameters are just numbers in physical equations. Mm -hmm. So, and um, there also isn't as clear of a, you know, a particular end except for the existence of intelligent life in the mm -hmm. fine tuning one. Mm -hmm. Perhaps what would you say are the major criticisms of design argument in the present day? Oh, I mean, you'd have to look at one. I mean, I think the biggest one that shows up often is, well, you're no better off invoking God mm -hmm. than just um, accepting the apparent design of the universe as a fruit given, because the idea is the designer of an artifact would have to be just as fine-tuned as the artifact itself. Like in the case of human beings, you know, our, when we design something, if we design a watch, well, we're a lot more um, fine-tuned our brain is than the watches have a lot more um, organized complexity, as they put it. So that's one of the big ones. Um, and then um, there's a whole bunch of other ones um, that um, get into specific, very specific, um, what particular design argument you're talking about and another very general one is they don't get you you know all the way to god well why couldn't you have um you know a, a bunch of different finite designers etc 
So how do you get to the theistic God from there? So would you say a lot of them are still inspired by, I suppose, Hume's arguments against um, natural theology? Again, against the design argument, do you think Hume still plays a very major yeah, influence? Yeah, it still plays a big role, right? I mean, one of them, who designed God, what I call the who designed God objection, which I just articulated, being the most you know common one, goes back to David Hume. And then whether you have an indifferent designer versus the designer of theism is another one. Why not just an indifferent designer? It's morally indifferent to us. What would you say are some of the major responses that a theist can give if they were if they were proposing uh, proposing a design argument? I suppose what what well, would be something they could say? I don't. I I deny. You know, the one I give on who designed the God objection, which I consider the strongest objection, is to just design arguments in general. Is mm-hmm. um, that only works if um, the being is. Um, by hypothesis, made of parts. And so the parts have to be put together in the right way in order for it to um, be able to bring things about. But traditionally, theists have always held that God is not made of parts. So there's nothing to fine-tune in God. And there's not even fine-tuning of God's basic attributes because they're all unbounded. So you don't even have a fine-tuning that applies there. So like a picture of, you know, if you have a picture of Abraham Lincoln, or I guess, you know, Boris Johnson, you being over in in England, you know, made of ink ink spots, um, those, they would need fine, those ink spots would need fine tuning to give you a coherent picture of, you know, Mm -hmm. some well-known person, because they're they're all little parts that have to be arranged in just the right way, but not, not so with God. So first of all, there's no fine tuning. It's it's um, inapplicable to God. So it's what they call a red herring. The real issue is whether it's plausible for there to be such a being that doesn't need fine tuning. That's infinite in the being's attributes, for instance. That just a, a kind of a con- unbounded consciousness and will. Um, is way you could think about it. So it's a mis it's a misdirected criticism. Mm-hmm. Perhaps moving a bit beyond the who caused God um, argument, I suppose again or or, or criticism. Who designed God? Because who designed God? Mm-hmm. Who to cause God would mm-hmm. be more the objection against the cosmological mm-hmm. argument. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I suppose um, developing on on that, or perhaps changing a bit to other objections. Of, of the fine-tuning argument. If someone came back and said, well, perhaps the universe just had to be this way, there was almost this brute fact nature of the universe and said, well, actually, um, there, the, the universe is just the way it is. How would someone go around responding to perhaps someone trying to bite the bullet against the fine-tuning argument? Well, it depends. On, um, there's two sorts of uh, uh, things, your uh, positions you're taking. Let me just distinguish mm-hmm. between the two. Mm-hmm. One is the brute fact idea, just a brute fact. It's just the way it is, and there's no further explanation. Well, that seems enormously improbable. I mean, in the sense that there's all these equal, look like equally good alternatives, just an enormous number of them, and there's only this one small range, for example, of parameters that will yield intelligent life. And our usual um, way we proceed there is we look for an explanation. I mean, this is common in science, like why did people, the atomic theory eventually win over when there was skepticism about it in around 1900. Um, a lot of people, scientists were skeptical. It was because under atomic theory, um, there 
atomic theory made sense of these, um, like for, there was 14 different methods of finding Avogadro's number, and they all yielded the same result. And that made sense under atomic theory, but without atomic theory, it would have been a huge coincidence, just enormous coincidence. And so the argument was, well, that greatly confirms um, uh, atomic theory, because atomic theory takes away the coincidence. And so we generally want to explain those coincidences. That's one way you can go in. You can formulate that in terms of Bayesian um, formulation that, you know, in, in atomic theory case, if atomic theory was false, then it'd be very unlikely that all these different methods of finding Avogadro's number would yield the same result. But if atomic theory is true, it's not improbable at all. So then Bayes' theorem, which is a theorem from the probability calculus, says that evidence that those all came together would, in um, same number, would greatly confirm um, atomic theory over its opposite. And we see that same kind of reasoning going on in the courtroom. That's why DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence counts in favor of guilt, because the idea is um, if the person was innocent, it'd be very unlikely that the finger, the fingerprints they find on the gun would match their fingerprints. It's possible that somebody else with nearly identical fingerprints could have touched the gun, but very unlikely, where it's not unlikely if the defendant is guilty. And so that's the basis of the inference to guilt over innocence in those cases. So like, same thing is going on in the case of the fine-tuning argument, I think. Mm -hmm. I suppose when um, someone might be objecting to um, the fine-tuning argument or, or a theist might be trying to approach the fine-tuning argument, um, they might be initially thinking that it's something which is quite simple. Um, however, I suppose if they're listening to this video, they hear things like Bayesian probability and other things like that. Do you think there's a more simple way for someone to kind of get their head around what actually are these fine-tuned prob probabilities or is it something which actually does, is actually something which is very complex and something that perhaps someone in the street might prefer not to get uh, muddled up in, perhaps? Well, the, I, I mean, the real simple idea is that the universe has um, fine-tuning means, you know, just the normal language things mm -hmm. have to be precisely set. So, like, you know, in the case of the cosmological constant, which governs the expansion rate of the universe, um, the typical estimate in the physics literature is one part in 10 followed by one followed by 123 zeros, enormously precisely set. So whenever we find something enormously precisely set like that, we say that would just be way too improbable on chance. So we look for some explanation and um, the explanation, the explanation kind of stares us in the face here is that some intelligent being God um, set that. So in that way, it provides evidence for, it's very strong evidence for the existence of God. It'd be like, you know, if you had a car that um, to get, you know, that some, the fuel, the air mixture, which just precisely set, let's say one part in a thousand to get um, optimized fuel economy. And you looked in the car and it was set there. You wouldn't just think that happened by accident you would think that, you know, the engineer said it that way. And especially if it was like one in a million, then you'd say, certainly it's not by accident. But here it's not way more fine-tuned than one in a million. That would be the simple way of thinking about it in terms of analogies.
But then if you get more, you can get more to answer objections, and it's nice to philosophically make it more sophisticated argument that's based on um, things that are even more secure, like the probability calculus, to kind of get to the bottom of what's going on in the argument. Mm -hmm. I suppose um, if, if one might be talking to an atheist, the atheist might say something along the lines of, well, I suppose with the situation of the car or with these analogies, we have experience of already a designer existing or an engineer existing. With the universe, it kind of is just, we, we never had any experience of any other universe or any other probabilities. And I suppose this ties back to the brute force argument a bit, but how would you go around uh, responding to the suggestion that what we experience, what we view as probabilities are often something which is experienced alongside a lot of other events, whereas when we are, it comes to the whole universe as a whole, we don't really see any other universes out there to say, to come to any conclusion. Well, I mean, so I would deny on very good grounds that you need this prior experience. I think that's mm -hmm. bogus. Um, if you, because look at the case of atomic theory, we had no prior experience of whether those Avogadro's number, you know, we, we didn't look at it, find a universe in which Avogadro's number didn't match, and then found a whole bunch of them in which they don't match, those 14 ways of testing it, and then the one it matched is, is one in which atoms exist. And there's all kinds of other cases in science, like quantum electrodynamics predicted the, what's called the geomagnetic moment of the electron to, um, is nine significant digits. Um, and we take that as strong evidence for quantum electrodynamics, but we had no prior experience with that. That was the first time. So to think that you have to have a prior experience, like, you know, you know, toss a coin many, many times to get its probability of something occurring, it's just not how confirmation works in science. So um, if they want to argue that, then let's throw out the inferences to atomic theory as a confirmation, all those cases you can look at in science. And I think um, if they're unwilling to do that, then they should drop the criticism in this case. If you've been enjoying this video so far and you like this interview, then make sure you go check out my blog and my newsletter after this video so you can stay up to date with all my insights, all my updates and all my notices about people I'm going to interview, the topics I'm going to be discussing and wrestling with. So if you want to just stay up to date with everything I'm doing right now, be it for this YouTube channel or in academics or anything else, then make sure you go check out my blog and my newsletter. The link to that will be in the description below so you can check it out after the video. Of course, make sure to like and subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you can stay up to date with all the content that I upload load here. Without further ado, let's carry on with the interview. So I suppose I'm um, taking a step back from some of the criticisms. What would you say are the main strengths for why someone who might be trying to defend the existence of God or someone who might be wrestling with the existence of God, why someone might be drawn to or might be convinced by the fine-tuning argument? Well, first of all, it's a very intuitive argument. Mm -hmm. So it just transfers our normal inferences that we do when we find like, you know, uh, like I mentioned with the car, that fine-tuned, you know, fuel-to-air ratio that you get in mm -hmm. for the carburetor. Or when we find a watch, we don't just, uh, like we found a watch on Mars or a, uh, um, like an alarm clock. We wouldn't just say it happened by chance. Let's say metals got together, you know, some volcanic eruption just um, got just the structure that made an alarm clock or a building, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it would be too unlikely. So all these cases we have of ordinary inference. So what we do is we're just applying it to the universe as a whole. So there's a, a huge intuitive um, um, 
basis for this argument. It's easy to understand. And that's why Richard Dawkins, you know, um, said, but, you know, with the one, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, said this at least about Paley's argument from um, the complexity of animal and plant life. It was that argument before Darwin's theory of evolution made it impossible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So that's one one reason, the intuitive nature of it. But I also think it's uh, philosophically has an advantage over like cosmological and other arguments is um, the cosmological argument at best gets you to a necessary being. Then the step that that necessary being is personal, I think is much more difficult to make. Whereas, um, and we also don't have, um, I think there's less intuition behind it. Whereas in this case, it immediately gets you to an intelligent being. And then I think it can get you a lot further because um, it's not just an intelligent being. If you require that the intelligence you're invoking does not transfer the fine-tuning up one level, that you know, you're explaining the fine-tuning of the universe by invoking something else, well, it, that thing you invoke better not require the same amount of fine-tuning. Well, in that case, I think it ends up getting you to an unbounded being. So you, my way of doing this is you kind of start with something like this, is either consciousness is fundamental to nature, the, the universe, so or the imp- consciousness which involved the personal, or what's ultimate is unconscious, like matter. And so then you have two ways of going. If you go the route of consciousness... Then, if consciousness is fundamental, um, the basic um, thing, then there'd be nothing else to bound the consciousness. So it makes the most sense to think that consciousness is unbounded, and so it'd be unbounded um, knowledge. No, everything is it's, it's um, knowledge would be unbounded. Its will is unbounded. So you get automatically, um, naturally, comes out of that omniscience and omnipotence and. Because of that, you don't have any fine-tuning that enters in. And so I think you can get pretty close to the um, God of theism. You could even get, I think, to the perfect goodness of God, because I think a thesis going back to Plato is that somebody who knows the good at least is motivated to do it, just to acknowledge the good. So if God knows something is good, God is motivated by that to do it. So the only reason people don't do the good if they know recognize something to be good is that they have some other contrary desire. But if God's mm-hmm. unbounded, God would be perfectly free. There's nothing to give God a contrary desire. Like in our case, we have other desires. We're finite beings. We have sexual desires that might, you know, weigh in. We know we shouldn't do this, commit adultery. We know that's a bad, but we do it anyhow because we have this contrary um, mm-hmm. desire, but that wouldn't be the case with God, so there'd be no conflicting desire, it'd be all, um, the good would be self-motivating, which means God's desires would always be directed towards the good, which makes God perfectly good, so you actually get a being just from those arguments I think that is omniscient, omnipotent and perfectly um, good, just from the fine that fine-tuning argument so you actually mm-hmm. get a long ways towards the um, long ways towards a personal god of theism. Yes. I suppose in response to the idea about the good, someone might raise, well, if God was motivated 
for to to the good, then perhaps what 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 should one say about evil? Or I suppose it's the problem of evil, but formulated more directly towards a fine tuning argument. I suppose how would one go around responding to that and explain the existence of evil in the world? Well, I, what I do is I do a kind of Bayesian formulation of this. Mm -hmm. I I say that okay, so we have two choices. I call beings like us highly vulnerable embodied conscious agents. So you, you know, that's what we observe. What why vulnerable embodied conscious agents? I mean, ones that are vulnerable to both natural and moral evil. So, um, you know, atheists, atheists admit that once you grant the existence of such beings, then that's going to account for the evil in the world, right? Because if we're vulnerable beings to doing moral evil, then, you know, it's likely we're going to do moral evil. So now shifting the question, it becomes, given that fact, it's highly improbable under atheism that such beings would exist because the existence of such beings themselves require an enormous fine tuning. But so that's a probability under atheism, but it's not highly improbable under theism because we can glimpse a reason for why God would allow that. There's something valuable about being able to, let's say, exercise courage I've developed a connection building theodicy. Mm -hmm. You'll have to go with my connection building theodicy, but as long as you can glimpse some viable reason that renders it not highly improbable, then that fact is not highly improbable under theism, but enormously improbable under naturalism, excluding the multiverse hypothesis, which we'd have to discuss separately. Um, therefore, it strongly confirms theism over naturalism. Mm -hmm. so that's how I approach it. Mm -hmm. I suppose um, you, you've, you've said the multiverse um, hypothesis should be discussed separately, but perhaps now that you've raised it, a viewer might find it very um, confusing or a bit worried about this multiverse hypothesis. Would it be possible if you summarize it very quickly? Or? So the multiverse, there's two aspects to what needs to be explained through the fine tuning for life is why there exists a life-permitting universe, okay, at all, mm -hmm. given how, you know, everything has to be adjusted just right, and then why we find ourselves as kind of generic embodied conscious agents in such a universe. Um, so let's start with the first one. The first one, the idea is if there is enough universes and the fundamental structure of the universe varies from universe to universe, then eventually there's going to be one that is just right for intelligent life to occur. Even if it's enormously improbable, you know, think of a lottery ticket. If the lottery generating machine generates enough tickets, eventually one will be the winning number. So if you have enough universes or some like some use the usual hypothesis is some underlying physical process does it just generates these universes and that some of the fundamental parameters vary from universe to universe eventually you're going to get one where it's just right okay and then the second part of it is important why do we find ourselves in such a one that's just right for life well we couldn't have found ourselves anywhere else mm -hmm. because um None of them could have given rise to observers. So there's no coincidence left to be explained. Mm -hmm. 
and often it's used to make this intuitive to people. It's often used the um, why it is you know why do we find ourselves in a planet that has just the right distance from the sun? In fact, if we were too far from the sun, we'd go into a, a ice age that would never end, and so we wouldn't really exist very early on. If we were too close, all the water would boil off. So why are we just the right distance from the sun? Well, the idea is if there's enough planets, you know, we've got a real big universe, eventually one's going to be just the right distance from the sun. And then among those that are just the right distance from the sun, eventually life will evolve on one of those planets. And then, of course, that life is going to find itself on a planet just right from distance from the sun because it couldn't find itself anywhere else. It couldn't find itself on a planet like Mercury or Jupiter because it couldn't have existed there. Mm-hmm. So that's the multiverse explanation Mm -hmm. so how would someone go around responding to it or how would someone go around um, kind of uh, providing a theistic hypothesis which is more convincing okay so one of the problems with the multiverse if you take the universe generator version is it looks like the universe generator whatever is generating these this physical process has to be fine-tuned not only to create the universes but to vary the fundamental parameters from universe to universe and in order to generate this multiverse. And I give an analogy like a bread machine, which I used to have, you know, to even produce one decent loaf of bread, it has to have the right program, the right ingredients. So if you actually look into the proposals for these multiverse generators, they have to be adjusted just right, have the right initial conditions and um, laws of nature to produce these universes. So it really doesn't fully eliminate the fine tuning. It just kind of pushes it back um, one level. Um, So that's one objection. Another really hugely discussed objection is the Boltzmann brain objection. And that is at least for the, um, why we have um, the mass energy, why its order is so very precise at the beginning of the universe. That's enormous precision. It particularly deals with that. And, um, and under that is that if you try to explain that as just a chance fluctuation, then it's far, 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 far more likely we would exist as isolated brains that only existed for a short amount of time with chaos everywhere else. But that's not what we observe. So it's contrary to our observation. Mm-hmm. And then um, my, my further development of all this is the fine-tuning for scientific discovery, And that cannot be explained by the multiverse because even though a universe might exist where it's, um, which certainly exists where it's really optimal for scientific discovery, given enough of them, it's very unlikely we would find ourselves in such a universe because all the other ones that are life permitting, but are not very good for scientific discovery would exist. So why don't we find ourselves in one of those? Mm -hmm. So that second that second kind of fine-tuning or coincidence, why do we find ourselves in such a good universe, a certain kind of universe, is not eliminated in the case of the fine-tuning for scientific discovery. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Perhaps someone coming into fine-tuning arguments right now might be curious as to where the current academia or the current discussion in fine-tuning arguments surrounds or what they're debating right now. What would you say are the current questions the big questions in fine-tuning discourse at the, at the present moment? Well, there there is the questions of um, um, the physics questions, mm-hmm. what parameters are really fine-tuned, and can we explain ultimately 
be able to explain those like entropy. There's been a lot of proposals, none of which um, seem to work on trying to explain the extremely low entropy of the beginning of the universe. That's one. So the, the physics questions and like you interviewed Luke Barnes on this. Well, a lot of the, you know, we have a massive amount of different physics reasons to believe there is fine tuning. Even if one of them we can eventually explain, well, there's still a whole bunch of other ones. Mm -hmm. And the digger, the deeper we dig, the more fine tuning we find. So mm -hmm. that seems, I think, is answered in favor of the fine tuning advocate. The other is the philosophical questions. Um, mm -hmm. And so does this really, you know, what's the nature of probability? How do you assess the probability here? All those kind of the who designed God objection, all those kind of objections um, I mentioned. And that's where, you know, my previous work, big published article on that in the um, um, Blackwell Companion and Natural Theology on the fine tuning, it tries to address those questions. Now, another kind of fine tuning, which really hasn't been really picked up on that much, is the fine tuning for scientific discovery. It's been discussed at the under the intelligibility of the universe, like by Eugene Wigner, his, which you can find easily on the internet. Is, um, he's the founder, one of the founders of quantum mechanics the unreasonable effectiveness of um, mathematics and the physical sciences, easy to find, just type it in. Um, and Einstein, who noticed this, who, the most miraculous thing about the universe is it's intelligible at all, but that's all on the intelligibility or the ability of us to discover the laws of nature. So what I've advanced this, and this I'm completing a project on this, is the fine tuning of the parameters of physics. And no one has addressed this, for their discoverability. So if it was really the laws were constructed to be discovered, if there was some providential ordering, then you'd think that would show up in the fundamental parameters. So if you change the parameters, then you would expect things to get either stay the same for ability to discover the universe or get worse. Mm -hmm. And I think I've got enough data now to show that they actually get worse. It was quite fine tuned for that. <coughs> so that would be the very cutting edge, but you know, all that, all that art, physical arguments have got to get out there. Mm -hmm. So that's what most other people are talking about. Definitely. So perhaps to end off um, this in interview, what would you say are the top five, six books on design arguments? What would be some of the best art, uh, books that people could read or articles that people could read to get into fine-tuning arguments if they want to learn more about it beyond this video? Well, there's books on, first of all, the fine-tuning itself. And Luke, Luke Barnes, so I would put number one recommendation on that book, um, The Fortunate Universe. Um, so that's number one. Um, there's also one by Martin Rees, Just Six Numbers, which is a good one, pretty accessible. Those are put the top two and any references therein. Um, Luke Barnes is the most recent. Um, in terms of design arguments as a whole, uh, it's more articles. Um, I would think. Um, there you just have to look at the literature. I published a fair amount on that, but then there's people that, um, you know, raise objection. Some of them I don't think are very good objections, but there is a whole literature out there on that, mostly coming out in article mm -hmm. form. Definitely. So that's where, I'd, that's where I'd be at on, you know, recommendations and accessible ones if you, you know, things that occur in philosophy of religion, readers often will give kind of overviews or 
pull out some of them from the literature. So I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Dr. Robin Collins. It was great to have him onto the channel to discuss such an important and influential argument in the history of the philosophy of religion sphere. If you enjoyed this content and want more interviews, then make sure to like and subscribe and let me know what you want in the comments below. I'll happily hear your thoughts there. Also, if you want to support our channel financially, then make sure that you check out our Patreon, which will give you exclusive access to newsletters, um, different works I'm working on, uh, upload up exclusive access to copies of essays I'm writing and much more. So make sure you go check that out. So like always, stay safe, my friends. I hope you've enjoyed this video. Stay safe. See you soon. Thank you for watching and God bless. I'll see you in the next one.